Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt Lift Eat podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional and investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field, and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com, reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt Lefty Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Luke, here today with the usual suspects and a new one. Uh, we got Carter. Perry, Evan, and introducing on his at uh, least Thursday podcast debut, old Ron Jitter himself. What's going on, fellas? Ron, how's it going? I'm doing very well. Happy to be here. How are you? Doing great, man. Hey, dude, why don't you give us just a little bit um, about your backstory, how you came up and, and who you are, and how long you've kind of been affiliated with the team, how we met and all that stuff. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm primarily an East Coaster. I grew up in uh, Western New York. Go Bills, and primarily waterfowl hunted my entire life. Uh, when I moved out of Western New York uh, after college, I pretty much didn't go anywhere that had any decent waterfowl hunting. So I had to pick up, you know, find other opportunities and, and animals to chase. So that, that got me into turkey, deer, predators. Uh, I got into bow fishing, spear fishing, and I've, every time I move somewhere new, there seems to be another opportunity that I've jumped on. I met Luke when he was living in Georgia and we kind of had like a brief couple month long friendship. And then I ended up living with one of uh, Luke's old roommates. He's another team member, Andrew Zeka. And he kind of reacquainted us and we've been going strong ever since. I think I kind of got reacquainted with you, Luke, while we were still in gluing patches on the hats phase of the company. Yeah, man, that was uh, it was fun. You're one of the the first dudes as we sat at, at deer camp back at at our hunting camp cabin and kind of talked about it. Everybody kind of looked at me a little bit stupid when I showed up with hats one day. So uh, it's it's been a journey over the past few years. Yeah, it definitely has. And in case there's any, in case there is any confusion, I've seen this come up a couple of times. I don't know if it's team members posting on the on the questions um, Sunday asks or whatever. But my name is Jonathan Ritter. Uh, commonly go by Ron Jitter amongst my friends. Just started a new Instagram page, Ron Jitter HLE, uh, just for the company. So that's where all the good content will be coming out. <laughs> Ron Jitter is John's uh, fucking redneck, fishing alter ego, who also enjoys ice cold bush light or whatever's close. Yeah, I think Ron only comes out when there's been a few adult drinks had. <laughs> that is a fact. My uh, my my next nearest goal, my personal goal, Ron, is to get your Instagram followers up to over a hundred by the end of the weekend. <laughs> I'm hoping to eclipse HLE by the end of the month. So, <laughs> dude, if you get up to a hundred, you'll what quadruple Perry? <laughs> <laughs> like a hostile takeover. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty low bar, man. Yeah, Perry's social media presence leaves something to be wanting for sure. Well, hopefully we'll get it there, but I'm excited yeah. to uh, be here this week and talk in Turkey. I think everyone's getting excited for it. 
Yeah, man, I'm I'm super stoked for you guys. I'm gonna have to live vicariously uh, through you because I will miss another uh, turkey season due to army, you know, uh, commitments. So this will be the second one I miss. But it's gonna be fun watching you guys. I'm sure Evan will have a fucking stupid lucky season again. Perry will probably watch a lot of birds and not shoot any of them. Carter will kill a Jake, and then John may kill one or two. That's that's my that's my prediction for the year. We'll see if it comes to fruition or not. I'd say it's a pretty solid bet, man, based on past experience. I like your prediction because that means I have another good season. Is that your move, Perry, to watch birds and not shoot them? My move is to have birds come just within striking distance and then to either fucking just totally strike out and miss the opportunity or just just fall short. So that's (laughs) been my past couple seasons. (laughs) Hopefully I'm going to try to change that this year, but to be determined, right? Oh yeah. So we'll see how it goes, but uh, this is going to be a fun podcast because none of us are expert turkey hunters. So everybody needs to take that with a grain of salt. Um, I've been turkey hunting for a couple of years now, very, very poorly. Um, the only time I've killed turkeys was back in my younger, less legal days. So we won't even go into any of those stories. And then uh, Evan had a really good season this year, but it was like his first season hunting. Uh, he had a, some of it was a, definitely can be attributed to his preparation and practice and definitely some of it as always with hunting can be attributed to some good luck. Perry had some good close encounters. John's probably the most experienced out of all of us. And then Carter as well has been hunting for a few years and definitely put a few birds on the ground. So uh, looking forward to this one, but why don't we jump straight into it and we can talk a little bit. Um, we'll start with you, John, and uh, just about kind of what you look at in the preseason, you know, this time of year moving into March, you know, as we're moving into March, and getting a little bit later in the season and some States even open up um, late March. So, you know, what are you looking at this time of year for your uh, Turkey preparation and scouting? Yeah. So before I even get into scouting, normally I, we've talked about it on, or you guys have talked about it on multiple episodes, but just laying your stuff out and making sure that nothing's been lost with moves or you misplace something in the garage, you know, real common items that I, I tend to misplace or decoy stakes um, my thermocell, which is an absolute essential because I use it for everything that I hunt. So I never know which jacket it ended up in last and, and where it's currently sitting. Um, you know, bug spray, mouth calls. I am the guy who I run, I think we're gonna get into this later, but I run, I carry like five or six different calls when I'm turkey hunting. Mouth calls, I've always just walked into Walmart and bought the $10 three pack. And I buy a new pack every year because they kind of go bad and I don't really maintain them or, or feel like going through the effort of sticking them in the back of my fridge. I think I tried it a couple of times. My mom threw them out every year I was in college. So I buy the $10 pack now and I, you know, Oh, actually, as long as we're talking prep ammunition, cause you are not going to find ammo this year in about a month. Yeah, that, that that's a good call. I uh, actually just stocked up on some for Evan. I actually got to mail that to him before I leave. And then I grabbed some more for myself cause I found a bunch. If you see it, buy it. Um, it's starting to come back uh, in the shelves on the shelves but it's still hard to find the prices are coming down a little bit but then you know it's just going to take you know a state of the union address where the president starts talking about gun control for it to all go right off the fucking rails again where people start hoarding it and shit so i would i would start at least when you see it buy it i wouldn't you know go out and buy it all at once but buy a few boxes here and there and try to get that ship you know prepped and prepared yeah i'll second that i am not gonna let my uh ammo supply get as low and like normally i keep pretty good ammo supply sitting around but i my turkey shells my deer rifles like all my tactical stuff was 
sitting pretty high, but like my hunting rounds was super low. Yeah. I mean, the good part about Turkey ammunition is it's, I mean, it can be a little bit expensive, but it, if you're only hunting one state, most of us are looking at shooting two birds max and maybe missing one, but you're generally talking shooting two, three rounds per season, maybe, maybe pattern one at the beginning of the year. So you can, you can get away with buying a couple of 10, two, three, 10 packs and be good for a handful of years. So on ammo on that, let's go around the horn and, uh, do y'all, so do y'all pattern, um, every time you get it, a new round and then like, what's your preferred Turkey loads? I haven't in the past. Um, but when Luke came up to hunt with me for the first time during Turkey season, what was that? Like two years ago now, Luke, geez. Um, we pattern our shotguns here at my like property three, three years, three years ago, dude. Damn. Uh, we patterned here uh, in the back of my property, and that was the first time I'd really done that. And I talked about this on a Tuesday tip episode. Uh, that was massive, right? Because all these rounds shoot differently, and that's really important. That's something you're definitely going to want to do, and that's something I continued since then. Because, um, you know, every every turkey load shoots a little different, especially now. I feel like there's some new fancy turkey load every single year coming out from Winchester and Federal and all these guys. Yeah, I think when it comes to, and this plays, this bleeds a lot over into the waterfall world as well, but really every gun's going to shoot different and so is every choke. So if you're going to switch ammunitions or choke, you should, I mean, the correct answer is to pattern it. I know that obviously with the ammunition shortages, a lot of people aren't willing to do it. But when I first started turkey hunting, I bought a choke that worked. I bought five boxes of ammo, borrowed a couple from my buddies and I shot them all. The one that shot the best was uh, out of my gun. It was a Winchester Longbeard XR, like number fours, I think, or number five. I think I shoot number fives. And I just haven't changed ever since. I just make sure I buy the same box, and I know that that round patterns. But even I had a – I think I shot that out of a Super Black Eagle too. Even if, you know, your dad or your brother has Super Black Eagle too, and they patterned it with the same choke, same brand and model choke, it'll shoot different out of your gun. So make sure you are – uh, patterning for yourself and all the equipment that you have. Yeah, I can piggyback off that. And this is, as Luke said, I'm a very new turkey hunter and I've only tried three different turkey rounds and I've only had one turkey gun. But all three of those rounds shoot completely different when I patterned them out of my gun. All three and a half inch, all the same number shot. I think I'm shooting four shot, um, but different manufacturers and they all completely pattern different. One was like super high. And so I chose not to go with that one, but definitely a good pointer there. Yeah, I'll be honest. I had fucking didn't try a ton of rounds. I uh, I do pattern it before every season, but what I do is whatever rounds I have or whatever rounds I'm going to shoot, I just shoot at different distances, see where I'm effective at, and kind of know, I don't want to say dope because it's a fucking shotgun, right? It's an area fire weapon, but have that set up. And once I know that, I just hunt. And like, my range on a shotgun anyway is going to, I mean, I patterned my gun. Um, I did just get a new choke. So if I was hunting this year, I would need to uh, uh, pattern it. But with my, the, the stock choke that came with my Stoger, I, I was good out to like 30, 40. Um, and I also run the, the long beard XRs from Winchester. I don't remember which shot I'm running. Um, I probably should know that. I probably, the ones I bought were probably different than the ones I had before, but you know, it's the type of thing that you just need to know what that round is doing through your weapon. And sure, if you find one that just shoots like butter and you, you love the the pattern uh, that you're getting and the results you're getting, roll with that. But at the end of the day, like 
it's so hard to find ammo. I mean, we ran into this in hunting season for deer, right? Like, yeah, ideally you're running the exact same round and that's the only round you're shooting, but sometimes you got to snag something new, but you got to re-zero your, your weapon every time you get a new round because your ballistics are going to be completely different. So it's the same thing with a shotgun. You got to check and see what your dope is. Yeah, for sure. I wasn't saying try to keep the same round. I was just uh, emphasizing what John said about just if you do switch rounds to just make sure you're patterning it. So, you know, like like that one round in particular that I was shooting, it was shooting high. So I would have held a little, you know, lower at closer range. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk vests a little bit as we talk about gear, because that was something that like I didn't. Well, I actually bought my second year turkey hunting after talking to John and was like, why did not I not buy this sooner? Um I've got one of the Primos um, vests, and I love the organization. I don't remember which one it is. I actually don't think you can find it anymore. But it's just got what, – what's really cool about a turkey vest is, like, having all your calls. You know, where do you want them? Like, mine's even got a fucking spot for a thermocell, which when I was turkey hunting down in Georgia was money. Like, being able to run the uh, thermocell and, like, just so, like, knowing where you're hunting, how you're hunting, if you're doing, like, a running gun setup or you hunting private land where you're going to be set up in, like, a blind maybe, you probably don't need a vest, but – your style of hunting, which I prefer running gun. I think that's what most of all of us use. Um, and so having that, that set up. So what are you running, John? Yeah. So kind of in the same boat, I, I bought a Cabela's vest with built-in seat probably seven or eight years ago. And I don't think they make it anymore, but they're all the same, the same thing, right? You spend roughly a hundred, hundred fifty dollars and you get incredible organization, a little bit of like storage area in the back to carry out either dead bird or, or decoys and the seat. And I, I almost use this as my Tuesday tip on the last Turkey episode, but I like aside from a shotgun and maybe a mouth call, I think I would, I will die on the Hill that the number one piece of equipment you need in the Turkey woods is a comfortable seat. If you're not sitting in a blind. Yeah, absolutely. And the seat, I, did, I failed to mention that mine also has that. So it, it's like, doesn't just, mine doesn't just have the pad. It's got like, like, think about those like stadium seats your mom had when she went to watch your high school football games that have like the buckles to clip in for the the support on the back. Mine has that as well, which is money because I don't even like need a tree to lean up against. I can drop anywhere and be set up, set my decoys wherever and then have, you know, back support. So I'm not you know sitting upright for hours and I'm can still kind of be in the prone, but with still with some support to, to shoot off my knee. I, uh. I would kind of like to try yours, Luke. And then also have y'all, I'm also considering getting a new vest and with the, you know, you've seen them that have the stands that like flip out so you can lean back same principle, but basically so you don't need a tree because my vest and me and Perry had this conversation last Turkey season, my vest is super light and it's great for the run and gun, but there's not a lot of room. Like you can only get one decoy in it. And then if you get a Turkey, there's no way you're fitting in there with your decoy. Um, so it's pretty tight. So I was thinking about maybe getting a larger vest that has maybe one of those prop sticks type setup and trying that. Any of y'all running one with those sticks? Mine, mine doesn't have the sticks. I've got the Primos. I think it's basically the newer model of the one you have, Luke. Um, I just bought it last year. So the first year, a couple years ago that I really, I would say seriously hunted turkeys, I didn't have a vest at all. And switching having the vest um like you said that has those buckles where you can kind of cinch up that support depending on whether you got your back up against a tree or whether you're just sitting in some some kind of thick brush that doesn't have a whole lot of support um or up against like a, a fence line or something like that it made a huge difference and I, I noticed a big difference on 
how long I was able to sit comfortably without, you know, really fidgeting a whole lot and all of that. So it, it's, it's something that I was looking at one of those that Evan, like you said, that has those, uh, those more, um, kind of, uh, supportive rods. They were all back ordered last year, so I couldn't find one, but even having something with the, with the buckles and the straps makes a big difference. Yeah, I have, uh, I run one of the Alps outdoors. I think it's called the grand grand slam Turkey vest or something like that, Evan. And it's got the, it's got the kickstand on it with those two seats. So you can lean back. It's awesome. It's legit. Uh, this year I'm doing something new. Um, my buddy Cole, Cole Reed, new new team member, shout out Cole Reed, got me a uh, mystery ranch fanny pack uh, for my birthday this year, and I'm gonna go. Kind of, I'm gonna slim down this year and try and go the less is more approach with with my turkey setup. Um, sometimes I find I bring way too much shit with my turkey vest, and I there's just so many things that go along with turkey hunting. I have too many calls that I don't use. I have extra shells that I don't need. I've you know, two, I don't need uh, two decoys all the time. So I'm going to run this fanny pack, um, and see, and see how that works. The organization is fantastic in it. Um, does really well. That's like great zipper pockets uh, and, uh, magnetic pockets on it too. So it's like, the you have the stealth approach. So I'm going to run that this year and see if that's kind of a game changer or not. That's interesting, man. I, uh, I'm curious how, I'm curious to hear how that goes. Cause, um, do you have a seat with that fanny pack or is that just going to be like no seat, just roughing it out there going super light? No seat, just roughing it, dude. Just roughing it. You're crazy. <laughs> if you are still not using a seat on your second hunt, I will, man, What are, do we have any, any big challenges going on or anything? Like uh, I will. 12 pack of beer. Dude, I'll buy you two thirty racks next time we're <laughs> at the camp. Like I, I don't think it's possible. I've no, never seen right. anybody go out there and sit at the base of a tree. It seems easy. Like if you never turkey hunted, like it seems like you could a hundred percent sit at the base of a tree for an hour without fidgeting. But if you do Carter, you are a much better man than I am. And no, you're, you're my right. My whole family. No, you're exactly right. Uh, luckily I could, I hunt a, uh, a lot of private up here so I can carry in, uh, one of those he- heated seats or whatever, like the cushion seats. That I, you know, I usually will carabiner one to my backpack or to my vest and use that. So now I'm with you. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to be an arrogant. I don't, I don't have a lot of cushion going on here. So I, I need, <laughs> I need the seat, man. So I guess my, my second question is so you, with a fanny pack, would you, would you rotate that around? Like, or do you hunt out of a blind or at the base of a tree most of the time? I hunt out of the base of a tree. So would, would you plan on rotating that around to like, essentially being on your lap while you're sitting down and set up. Yeah. I think I'm going to flip it to the front. Kind of like one of them, one of them Scottish things that hang down when you're wearing a kilt and rock it like that. Um, we'll see. I mean, I haven't tried it, but I'm curious to see it's, I like the idea of cutting down on stuff that you carry into the woods. Where are you going to put your Sammy's dude? It's a really good point. There's a lot, there's a lot of space in there, so maybe we can figure something out. Dude, you're nuts. I'm just gonna say it. Like the going out with nothing. Come on, that's turkey hunting. You got your fucking calls. You're gonna. You're disorganized as is. You need something where it's like a round pocket where your slate goes, and you gotta put it there. And you're gonna know it's there. If you just got like a pouch, you're gonna be leaving shit in the woods. 
You're going to be dropping shit. The rain's going to come on. You're going to leave the fanny pack open. It'll fill up with rain. Like, come on, bud. Prior, prior to this season, I just brought a, a Kroger bag full of all my shit. So <laughs> it's an upgrade. <laughs> just rummage around in the bag and try and find you, my shit. I think you That's had a hilarious. backpack when we went. Just I did have a burlap backpack, sack yeah. out there. <laughs> it's just tell like what, like on. the classic cartoon where the kid runs away from home, just the bandana tied around the stick. That's that's Carter's <laughs> turkey setup right there, just a burlap sack tied around the end of a shotgun. <laughs> since since I've started working for you, Luke, I'm working on my organizational skills. Okay, this is another we opportunity. Just, we should just switch turkey vest, Carter, because mine is like super streamlined, super light, super agile, and I didn't like it. I like having two decoys. I like having, you know, I eat a lot. I like having room for three sandwiches and five water bottles. You know what I mean? Josh can, or John can attest to that. <laughs> turkey yeah. hunting. When, when we, we, Evan and I went turkey, well, you can kind of call it turkey hunting. It was more just like walking around a river bottom in Colorado, but looking for uh, Rio's. I've never seen somebody pack more fucking water for a half day <laughs> turkey soiree. A damn bag weighed like ten pounds with just fucking water. <laughs> yeah, well, he was frightened about you know your, your antelope. But I was just about to say I've never, water. I've never been uh, in a situation where I didn't have water that I needed. To, so you know, I mean that's fair. But we were also by a river, so worst case, we could have just taken a little swaller. Yeah, there's also like four houses in walking distance, so we weren't <laughs> roughing it. <laughs> knocked on the door. And he filled my dying. canteen. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, so uh, yeah, I don't think we need to do a rundown on shotguns, right? Like any, I would recommend, you know, 12-gauge, but, if, you know, with modern shells, 20-gauge is going to be plenty, especially for, you know, smaller women or kids. You don't want to scare them with a 12-gauge, and, Turkey loads don't have a ton of recoil compared to like you know triple out buck, but they've got a little bit of little bit of warmth to them. So um, Dude, bullshit. Ask Perry. He about he about got put on his ass when he shot that three and a half inch for the first time. I was like, boy, you better stand up straight. And he was like, I'll be fine. He let that they cranked that thing off and about put his little scrawny ass down on the ground. I was dying laughing. I wish like well, hell I would have been recording. He looked like a daggum beanstalk in a fucking windstorm dude well like i said you know 20 gauge for the women and the children i probably should have added perry in there but it was implied i, I fucking knew that was coming Luke. <laughs> so yeah i mean three and a half has got a little womp to it um no doubt it's it's uh it's a hefty shell but you know it's not it's manageable if you know you don't weigh 120 pounds as a grown man <laughs> yeah, definitely. You don't want to, I think that's something to, it's kind of a valid point is to, you don't want to put too much weapon in somebody. Cause like if you start, like, let's say you're trying to get your wife into it and she's a little gun shy. If you hand her a 12 gauge with three and a half inch and you want her to pattern it, like she's going to be so scared of that weapon after it goes off, like start her off with something light, like even like a 410. Like you can, you can run, there's some turkey loads for 410. Your range is going to be, you know, a little shorter and your pattern is going to be a little tighter, but it's, it's possible. You can also run a 20. Um, and you don't always have to go, even if you're running the 12 gauge, you can run a three inch shell. You can run a two and a half and just now a lot of weapons or a lot of modern, uh, shotguns won't cycle with two and a half, but if you're running, but if you're running a pump, that's not an issue. So just, you know, kind of gauge and 
put a little analysis into what weapon you're putting in whose hand. So on shell, because uh, I've only used three and a half, how many of y'all have used three inch? And for those that have, I know you did, Perry, and now you switched to three and a half. Um, what's the, have y'all noticed a big difference in range, if at all? I, I can speak to this a little bit in, so obviously we're talking lead versus steel with waterfowl versus turkey. I've only ever shot three and a half inch for turkey, but I can tell you the waterfowl community in general is kind of deviating back to three inch shells because there's not a noticeable, there has not been a noticeable like increase in, in, I guess, range or lethality compared to the downside you get from the added recoil of the three and a half inch round. Now we're also talking about shooting one round at a turkey versus, you know, three at waterfowl, but that's the general trend I've seen in waterfowl. And again, we're talking about steel versus lead. So Carter, do you have any, any input on that? But I'd be curious to see a study or if anybody, any of the listeners has any input on the three and a half inch versus three in the turkey realm. That'd be awesome. I shoot threes exclusively. I shoot shotguns a lot. I coach a sporting clays team for our high school um, and I duck on as much as I can. And I shoot threes because those follow-up shots come a little easier. I think I'm a little more accurate on those follow-up shots. Um, And you don't need, it's not necessary to have, you can kill turkeys with three inch shell. So like, if I shoot more accurately, if I need a follow up, that's the way I'm going to go. And it's it's a habit from waterfowl and, and clay pigeon shooting. But just in case you need to double tap that turkey, I, I just shoot threes. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, y'all correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm speaking out of my ass and ignorantly here. But from the, the reading that I did, and it was not extensive um, before I decided to go with three and a half, the principle is from my understanding is that it's not necessarily a range with the three and a half versus three inch. It's more pellets. And so it's supposedly a more lethal shot because you're getting more pellets in that Turkey's head or in the kill zone. Uh, can any of y'all speak to that? Is that correct? Or have y'all found that to be correct? My understanding is more, it's more pellets and it's clearly more powder because there's significant, I think it's fairly significant that if it's between three inch and three and a half, I run three inch and three and a half really because it, the past few years it's been been whatever you can find. I think I have mostly three inch, but I just bought a lot of three and a half. Um, but I, I'm kind of with Carter on that, right? If and This would be a really easy video if you guys wanted to do, um, anybody that had both wanted to do a, a video is just pattern, you know, run t- uh, two patterns and at different distances, shoot at 20, 30, 40, and then run three inch and three and a half and see what the pattern difference looks like and the accuracy. And it'd be, a, a, you know, six, six rounds and pretty easy to test because I don't I'm kind of with Carter on that is that I don't necessarily think that three and a half is extremely necessary. But at the same time, if you're shooting once, like sometimes overkill is better, more pellets, more power, powder, more power and, you know, kinetic energy going into the bird equals more dead. Right. Is that how that math goes? That checks out my my head. But, you know, I've got that Appalachian mouth math down to a science. What's the, what's that Appalachian mouth doing? You don't want to know. <laughs> so two more quick thoughts on, on ammunition is again, we, we, I mean, I don't have a three and a half inch and a three inch in Winchester Longbeard XR. Right. But you can answer that question for yourself. And, and if anybody doesn't know what we talk about by patterning, you know, just draw a target out there and put it out at 30, 40 yards, whatever your ideal kill range is. or for Turkey season, seen a lot of guys use a Turkey head shoot that target and just count the number of pellets that hit at 40 yards, shoot your next round 
obviously on a clean target and uh, and count again. But I think, and again, this is a guy who had for the last five, last probably, we're getting old, probably 10 years, I've only shot three and a half inch rounds of turkey. But I think across the entire hunting industry, we're seeing this push away from the marketing trends of the last decade, you know, moving from lighter arrows back to heavier, moving from three and a half inch rounds in the waterfall world to three inch. And a lot of us have fallen into this trap of, hey, I bought a $2,000 shotgun that shoots three and a half inch rounds. I have to shoot them. You know, that makes me cooler and stronger. And I can make fun of Perry for shooting a 20 gauge because I'm shooting 12 gauge, three and a half. You know, but like at the end of the day, for the last 50 years, people have been killing turkey probably with two and three quarter inch and, and 20 gauge three inch shells. To be fair, you're the only guy on this podcast currently shooting, running a $2,000 shotgun. Uh, the rest of us are big money posers and we pretend <laughs> like we have a lot of money, but we're actually poor as fuck. Uh, so you're the only one who is frivolous enough to spend $2,000 on a fucking shotgun. Just for duck. You want to know why though? This is a slight offshoot, but that's just, that's just because I'm a lazy hunter and I can take that $2,000 shotgun and drag it through the mud and still shoot ducks with it without cleaning it the next day. So that's story for another podcast. When I first started, uh, either hunting with a shotgun period, it was a 12, uh, or like hunting turkeys. It was a 12 gauge. It's a Winchester, I think 1400. It was like a $200 fucking shotgun. I bought from a dude who was PCS into Germany and couldn't take weapons with him. Uh, when I was a second Lieutenant, I bought it from my, one of my majors and, uh, after getting, then I got my Stoger. It's an M3500, and I thought I was like, just fucking, I'd made it. This fucking super sexy, you know, semi-automatic three and a half inch shells. And then I shot John's Benelli, and I was like, fuck, fuck, I need one of those now. But still haven't bought one. I'm happy with my Stoger. I know Perry's happy with his too. But uh, that was so 20, to- 20 gauge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to to go back to what John was saying, it's interesting you say that, John, uh, about the the shells and like the going back and forth. And I was just listening to a podcast. It's the Turkey Hunter podcast, or I don't know, it doesn't matter. But they had Will Primos on as a guest, and they were talking about why they used to teach that as soon as you shoot a turkey, you run up on it and put your head on the neck or prepare for that follow up shot. Was because back then, you know, this is two decades ago, twenty or more, you know. 20, 30 years ago, the shotgun shell technology is not what it is to, was not what it is today. And there was a lot more non-lethal hits, um, on turkeys that would disable the bird. Um, but now with the heavier shell, the heavy, the better loads, the, the, you know, steel, tungsten, lead, whatever, um, the three and a half inch, like three and a half inch shells weren't a thing back then. And I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering what Will Primo said, y'all might, you might know this, John or Carter, um, is that I'm pretty sure they didn't even have three inch until like the early nineties. They were mostly like two and three quarters for even 12 gauge, I want to say. And so there was a lot less lethality in those turkey rounds. It's why they taught that, but just food for thought there. Yeah, I have nothing more on the ammo, but it's interesting that you talk about uh, running up on turkey after you shoot it and putting your foot on its neck because I only ever had one turkey mentor in my life, and I went with him like twice. He was my dad's buddy, and he shot a turkey, and that's he went sprinting up there and put his, his head his or his foot on its neck, and I, until this moment, thought that was like the standard and what you're supposed to do. So thank you for the uh, the lesson on why not to listen to old guys in the woods. No, I mean, I think it's the valid – 
because turkeys will still take a less than lethal hit and then jump up and run off. So I think once it, the bird's down, you you know get up on it and be ready to have that follow up. But just because we are very interested in you know facts and truth on this podcast, um, the three inch shell came out in 1935. So Evan was a little bit off there. Uh, but I think off. what you're thinking of, brother, is the three and a half inch shell came out in 1988. So, gotcha. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Like I say, I'm I'm regurgitating this from another podcast I listened to fairly recently. But I know they were talking about like a lot of those shells were not like technology advances, right? Like we have better shells, we have um, all that, and the lethality has increased. But that's why they used to teach that running up on, it. and it's still applicable. I mean, the first turkey I ever shot with Perry, I knocked it out of a tree. It literally flew over our decoys and landed in a tree above us, which was bizarre. Um, granted it was a Jake and knocked it out of a tree and we ran up bolt it. But, uh, Will was talking, Will Primos was talking about like the reason you put your foot on the, the turkey's head is it'll actually flop around and then it's got enough weight and it's flopping around violently enough. It actually breaks its own neck, which I found interesting. That makes that, a lot of sense. Yeah. That part of the, you know, the old hunting war of putting your foot on a turkey's ne- head. I didn't realize it was to cause a turkey to break its own neck. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, I mean, let's just, we're already halfway through this shit and we've only gotten through one point. So kind of putting a pin in this, you need a shotgun or I guess a bow. Uh, we don't even need to get into archery tackle for uh, turkeys. We'll let somebody else that's better than us handle that. Um, but, we'll, you know, you need a shotgun, shotgun that's the appropriate, pro- appropriate size for the shooter involved and then make sure you pattern that shit and then, you know, vests are optional, but preferred, and then some sort of way to call, and then practice your calls beforehand. There's a lot of techniques for that. None of us are calling experts. So we'll let somebody else once again talk to talk to that. The Primoses have some great turkey um, calling videos. That's where I learned to run a diaphragm and slate and box calls. And then it's just annoying the hell, living hell out of your spouse with those calls. Um, practicing on the way to work is a great way to do it. I know all of us have utilized that technique. But let's run um, – Let's run into uh, some decoys and some decoy setups and so some different brands. I know I've got a couple that are like just the stock, like Primos kind of cheapos. And then John introduced me to Avian X. And after looking at those, there's really no comparison and they're way more expensive. But the realism of those things um, is pretty, pretty easy. And then we can talk because I think it's easy for kind of new uh, turkey hunters to think you need a bunch of different decoys and styles and have a whole flock out there. But I think a lot of us are in the same mindset that, you know, kind of running a minimalist to decoy approach seems to be fairly effective. So Carter, you want to kind of run into what your approach on decoys is? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. It's really easy to get caught up then in the, uh, you know, wanting to purchase every style of decoy. There's so many different styles and setups and stances and like even with hens there's like four or five different main you know you've got the feeding and then the upright and then like you you can get carried away and i've done it i have like eight decoys in my shop and i'd use two of them right i've purchased every single one um so it's easy to get caught up in it uh and it's when you have so many it's also easy to like double guess yourself and like okay what type of setup should i be using in the field What, what what should i be using in this scenario um, so I think what Luke is saying is like stick with the basics is really important here. Um, I like uh, Montana decoys a lot. Um, and then Luke also turned me on to the Avian X. So I guess shout out to Ron Jitter for hooking me up with Avian X through Luke. Uh, their decoys are great. They're durable. Um, you can 
kind of beat on them a little bit decoys that you can kind of carry in in your vest um and then set up in the field and they don't look like dog shit when you reset them up if you fold them or if they get crumpled or anything like that are really important um and then i guess decoy setups ron you're probably best versed in decoy setups but i like to run like a real shitting jake like a real pathetic looking jake in the beginning of the season um that seems to work really well. Like someone who just wants to get their ass beat, like a real sad looking Jake. And so then like uh, the Perry of Jake's. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Dude, damn it. I, I, again, God, I damn. knew that was fucking coming. Perry, damn they are relentless. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> Look, we're we're going to actually, instead of calling those decoys, Jake's, we're going to now call those Perry's. decoys, Perry's. We could it. HLE ever expands into decoys. It's easy to name them. Damn. Just scrawny and frail and <laughs> he's got a bullshit beard. Of course, Perry's got a pretty nice beard. So it's way nicer than mine. Way nicer than mine. Yeah. So that's like my strategy early season. Little shit and Jake. Um, it's easy to overthink. Montana decoy has a, uh, on their website, they have a great guide, like guide buying, uh, part of the website that kind of walks you through what type of decoys you need for your particular setup. Um, and there's so much information out there. It's easy to overthink. So don't go out there and buy every single decoy you can. But Ron, why don't you save me from myself here? So when it comes to decoys, I so we talked about the Avian X and there's some sticker shock to be had there if you've never turkey hunted or if you've always run like the foam ones from Walmart or whatever your sporting goods store in your state is. Um the, I mean, I've used the Primos. I used the Primos for a couple of years. It was like 20 or 30 bucks a decoy. I used the foam ones growing up. The biggest difference with like the getting into the premium tier is the realism and really the shape, right? Like at the end of the day, we're hunting a bird that th- their eyesight's way better than ours, right? So I don't really know if it, if it cares that it's foam versus if it's plastic, but I know that every time I pull an AVNX decoy out, it's going to hold the shape of a turkey and not be dented from me walking it in and sitting out there in the field, punching the inside of my decoy, trying to get it to pop back out and take its original shape. Um, and if you really get into turkey, like Avian X is actually probably like lower top tier. You look at like the Dave Smith decoys, those are like 150, 200 bucks a pop. And they are, they damn near look like a, uh, taxidermy Turkey, you know, and there's some guys who use taxidermy hens and Jake's in the field. Um, but I would like the Avian X cause they deflate so I can, I can, you know, pack them up real small in the truck and in my, when I'm carrying them in and then on the walk-in. And then when it comes to how many decoys you're going to use, there's a ton of different methods like Lucas and Carter were alluding to. Like I, I probably went overboard. I think I own six or seven decoys at this point. Majority of the time I'm bringing out two. So that, that's a, that brings me to a point I wanted to address John. Um, and again, I, I want to throw this out to, to lead off. Like this isn't me, knowing this from experience this is me regurgitating turkey experts things turkey experts have said uh to throw out some uh jason cruz for mossberg will primos i just bought a book i can't tell you the author and he kind of talks on decoy placement in there but not so much your it's it's not going into so much like which decoy, but how you're emplacing them and why. And this kind of goes back to my turkey tip from Tuesday. You know, you can master a Yelp and a cut and a purr, but if you're 
incorrectly using those calls, you're not going to be as successful as if you're using those calls correctly at the right times. And that kind of relevant and it translates over to decoys. And one thing I've learned, and I, I was successful, it did work. I saw these results firsthand is if you're going to run two, uh, it seems like the turkey experts, the turkey masters, if they're running two decoys, they're going to do a breeder hen and a jake, and then they're going to paint the jake's head white. Every single one of them, every single turkey master that I have listened to talk about said they do that because the turkey's head, when it's white, it is an aggressive. It's it's a it's like that that Jake is getting ready to breed that hen. So when that uh, the sexual uh, tension between male turkeys, like the sexual hierarchy there, that dominant Tom that you're looking at that's coming in and responding to that hen is going to see that Jake and he's immediately going to get pissed off and he's going to charge. And I did witness that on several occasions um, in the turkey woods. Secondly, if you're, if you want to add a third decoy, um, it's been my experience and my understanding that if you're going to do it, put out a feeder hen and you're going to put that kind of off to the side 20 yards. And what that does is all it, it's giving that Tom that's coming in comfortability. It's making him comfortable now. Um, that there's essentially like a, a watch guard. There's someone there with eyes that are up that are not focused on the sexual mating ritual that is just there feeding and kind of um, in the area. Now, going back to that breeder hen, the reason the breeder hen is so effective is there's a hierarchy in hens as well as toms. And the breeder hen, the primary ones that are going to be bred are those dominant hens. And so if you have that breeder hen, that's typically indicating that she is higher up on the ladder um, in the whatever turkey world. And so that can have an effect on pecking the order. That, yeah, there you go. No pun intended, right? See, see what you did there. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the method I've adopted. I probably will not ever run more than three decoys after hearing all these guys with 30 plus years experience and all of them are basically saying the same thing if they're running two decoys it's a breeder and a uh, jake with the head painted white and then also uh don't clump them up a lot of, it sounds like a lot of new turkey hunters clump up their decoys don't clump them up don't be afraid to put five ten meters between them um, and then if you're going to add that third put your feeder hen off to the side yeah that's exactly right evan like when i we talked about it with best space and everything like me personally, if I'm hunting alone, most of the time I can only carry two decoys. And if I'm bringing a, a friend out with me, like that's, I will add that feeder hen to the bag and put her either. Sometimes I'll put her behind me um, just to make him close that gap even more, you know, off to the left, 45 degrees behind me, 15, 20 yards. Uh, but just somewhere in the vicinity, just have his eyes looking somewhere else besides, besides you, because their eyesight is so good that, any, any advantage you can get in getting that bird's eyes off you are, are paramount for success. That's something that uh, Evan and I really learned last year. And it, it goes to also what you're alluding to with how you set up your decoys, not just which decoys you're using for a specific situation. But that that uh, that gobbler that came in on us, Evan, that I you know had that super close call with, um, we were set up basically directly behind the decoys. And I think once he got close enough um, that he could see through kind of some of the thick brush that was between us, he picked us out kind of beyond those decoys because we were kind of in that same line of sight where we, if we had been set up offset or have had those decoys kind of set up off to the side, like you're talking about with that feeder hen, 
I think it would have been more of a distraction to that Tom where we would not have been in his natural kind of field of vision as he was approaching us and likely would have had a, a much better opportunity to eventually kill that bird. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And we, we, you know, that was a hasty setup and to, to give the listeners some, some context there, we located this Turkey prior to the location Perry's talking about. We were like, all right, we got a response. We're going to close the distance a little bit because that's, you know, how, again, in the Turkey world, it happens. The hen typically moves towards the Tom. So we were, our game plan was, is we were going to move towards the Tom and then we were going to shut up and then act like an uninterested hen. And I was going to change my call method and see if we could draw that Tom in. And it worked out phenomenally. And this Tom came charging in. What we did though, is as we were moving and as we were getting set up, we heard him gobble and we set up in a hasty manner. We could have taken a little bit more time, but we could tell he was fired the hell up. Um, and so we got excited and both of us being inexperienced, we, we didn't put our decoys in the right spot. We actually put our decoys in a pretty damn good spot. We didn't put ourselves in the good, the good spot. And then that ultimately ended up screwing up the hunt. Um, and we also misjudged where that turkey's going to come. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are pretty good at that, but it's a wild animal. You don't, you know, it, 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 it can change up its approach based off terrain or based off a fucking log or a rock or whatever. There's no way to really know, but um, there was definitely a lot of great lessons learned from that experience Perry's talking about. John, can you talk something I don't know a lot about, admittedly, is like fans on uh, on Tom decoys. Can you enlighten us a little bit on when that's appropriate or when the fan needs to be up or down or i know there's a lot of different positioning going on there and i feel like i never quite get it right i've never had success with it i guess yeah so i mean just to start off i want to reiterate again that i don't think any of us here are experts right so (laughs) take all of our advice with a grain of salt if you've been turkey hunting for 15 years and that's your thing like you probably know not even listening to this but nobody listens to this podcast for expert opinions (laughs) on anything so in my experience, I do have a full fanned out Tom, um, and I have used it with success. Most of the time it has been with the dominant bird in the area. And I, most of my setups as of late, I, I like to go in, I, I like space. Like I would prefer to hunt a 400 acre public lot than a hundred acres of private for Turkey. Cause I just want to be able to walk and chase birds. I don't, I don't have the patience to sit down for three hours in one spot and call. And that can be extremely effective. It's just not me. So I, you know, if you have the same encounter with, if you have a bird that you encounter multiple times and he's not coming into the Jake and the hen that you have out, uh, I have seen it work the third or fourth time I've seen this bird, the fan doing it because that's the dominant bird. He sees that fan. It's like, okay, this, this is not happening on my turf. And I've, I've also never lived in a state where you can, well, I guess I get, well, I mean, everyone's seen the YouTube videos, right? Where the dude crawls out in the middle of the field with a fan and the birds just come charging in. I guess I have lived in a state where, where I am now, but I've, I've always wanted to try that. Right. But you're, you're really just getting at the, that dominant birds, aggressive nature. And like his, if he's the dominant bird, there's not a single bird that's going to fan and breed his hens. So once you have that fan out there, that's what it does. The issue is because you could have a really big Tom. That's not the dominant bird in the area. And you might think it is until you put a fan out there 
and then he comes around the corner and sees it, he's not coming in because the bird that was fanning out in that field last week beat the hell out of him. So that's been my experience with a full fan bird. If you're again, like I have found a dominant bird, put out a breeder hen, put a fan fanning Tom five feet behind her and had Tom run into it. I've also put out a fanning Tom with a breeder hen and had birds hang up at 60 yards. You're big toms, right? But obviously that tells me it probably is not the dominant bird in the area. So do you think there's any uh, validity to overuse of decoys? So what I'm, what I'm saying that is I've heard people saying that you can have that effect. Like if the dominant Tom's not there, right. And you have six decoys out, let's just say, and you have a strutter out and you have another Jake and then the rest of them are hens set up in whatever way. Then if you're, you, you have a shooter, you have a long beard coming in, but it's not that dominant Tom. It's not that, you know, it's cause they have that pecking order. Um, and if it's not that dominant Tom, it's a bird you would shoot, but it ends up almost like intimidating that bird. So he doesn't come into shotgun range or bow range. Do you think there's any validity there? Um, I I've heard people talk of that, but not extensively. I'm curious what y'all's thoughts are. Uh, yeah. So two years ago, I had personal experience with this. My buddy and I were hunting this bird and we ran a Jake with a breeder hen and we ran into him twice. Like I think a Saturday, Sunday hung up at like 60 yards and never came in the following weekend. My buddy went out with, I couldn't hunt with him. He brought three hens and he said that bird came in on the tightest rope and didn't fan until he was in the decoys, saw them and came straight in. You see, just, you got to play the birds that, you know, it's all, it's all learning process. Like you got to figure out the flock that you're working with, you know, turkeys are creatures of habit. So if you don't scare that bird off, if he just hangs up and then doesn't come in because there's another bird there and he's making his ass kicked for three weeks, there's, he's, as long as you didn't scare him off or shoot at him, he's probably going to come back to generally the same area, at least within calling distance. So just change it up, you know, may, on that particular bird, it, maybe it was the dominant bird. And if we had put a fan out there, it would have brought him in. In this instance, we went with, I, I didn't hunt with him that day, but like I said, he went out there with no male turkeys, no Jake, no Tom, three hens. And that thing came straight in. He took, he took a video of it trying to breed him for like six or seven minutes in the decoys before he shot it. So no, no prior knowledge, John, you're in a new area. You've never hunted before. You haven't had the chance to scout it. What kind of setup are you going to run? If I'm by myself, it would either be no decoys or the breeder hen Jake that Evan discussed. And that just comes down to really what I'm willing to carry and the terrain. I think if you're hunting ag or agriculture in a lot of open areas, this is my personal opinion. I like with the Turkey being so good at like keen in on your calling location. If you're hunting open areas, like I just, I want to have a decoy. Like, I, you know, like th there's almost no camo that's good enough unless you have a really, really hot bird and it's the right time of the year. But if you're, I've moved on to enjoying hunting more like timber in thick areas. And you know, I've, I've, you can use the terrain to your advantage to sometimes I, I almost purposely hide my decoys, right? So we were talking about Evan and, and Perry with your experience of having that bird trying to come in on you. A lot of times if he's on the other side of a hill, I will try to put my two decoys and I, you know, I will run up as close as I can comfortably before I, you know, call once he gobbles, get closer. If I'm going to put the decoys right in front of me, right in between them, 
I like to put him on the crest of a hill on the backside and then sit down below the decoys so that by the time he pops up over to see those decoys, he's in range and there's no ability to hang up. His head comes over the top of that hill and he's in range. Um, did I answer your question, Carter? I feel like I kind of went off on a tangent. No, it's good. I like that. I just, sometimes I find myself second guessing. Oh yeah. You said so if if I've uh, never been there. I mean, yeah, typically that's my go-to is a Jake and a a breeder hen. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. I think that's a pretty, just kind of universal safe setup. Like what Evan was talking about. I I know that doing a lot of listening, that's what folks have, um, like, you know, the turkey experts, quote unquote, uh, always recommend. And I think when you're in a new area, it's just a great way. And then you can start to get that pulse, like what John was talking about, right? How are these birds responding? Um, if they're getting hung up, maybe we try just the hens uh, or we try a more dominant bird or, or, you know, you can flex off that if you're going to hunt the same place for like three, four days. But that first setup, I think that makes a lot of sense. One thing um, I think is something that not a lot of folks do um, is kind of you know, if you're in an open area, you obviously can't do this as much, but one, you can also use to like micro train a topography. You just need to be able to see the bird. So if you can put the, the decoys, you know, either on the, the backside or like on the, just on the back, um, military crest of a IV line. So you can see like the top half of your decoys, and then you can be back and deflate a little ways. Now, when that big Tom comes in, you're going to be on the backside of the intervisibility line. And he's going to be focused on those turkeys uh, on the decoys, excuse me. <clears throat> and that way you're not there in the forefront. And so I think that was, a, that's a mistake that I've made in the past, right? You're like, Oh, this is a great spot. I can see my decoy so clearly. Well, if you can see your de- decoys extremely clearly. So can the bird then see you as you're coming in, unless you brush yourself in um, if you're not utilizing that terrain. And so that's something Carter and I did a little bit of, uh, whenever the last time we hunted was, is we actually made a little makeshift brush blind where we brought in some, um, you know, some uh, limbs and whatever and kind of brushed ourselves in. We still had a clear line of sight, but, and we were off into the tree line and had a good backdrop behind us <clears throat> of some thick brush. And that way our camo has something to blend into and then our silhouette can get lost in that versus being able to be skylined where your silhouette's going to be very um, apparent to that bird because turkeys do have phenomenal vision and eyesight. And so you need to try to one, get their attention off of you and to have that, um, have your pattern get broken up and let your camo work. I'm still using that blind. I kill a Turkey out of it every year. That's a, that's a, you hit on some really good points there, Luke. And one I want to expand on and, and John kind of alluded to it as well is keep in mind, you know, with your decoy placement and your position as well, the Turkey's biological, uh, breeding trait is is the gobblers calling the hens calling they're locating each other and they're moving together once there is a visual done so in the turkey breeding world once that tom identifies the hen or the hen identifies the tom there is a visual it is in their biological nature to where the hen then approaches the tom and the tom sits there and struts and drums and clucks and purrs and all that shit um so if that's there's, there's a lot of science behind what Luke is uh, saying as far as like you're having to force that Tom to go against his biology. And if you can set everything up um, in your favor to put those decoys in the backside of a micro terrain feature um, to where that Tom is looking for the hen, he can hear the hen, but he's looking for the hen. And when he first identifies that hen, i.e. decoy, if he's in shotgun range, you just did yourself a favor as if 
as opposed to if he identifies that hen from a hundred yards out and he can, and he can identify that hen. And I made this mistake my first turkey season and I had one hang up in a draw and I, cause I put my hen right on the top. And so he, and he strutted for an hour and a half and never closed the distance because he could see my decoy and I could see him. But if I just would have dropped that decoy back behind that ridge, there's a very good chance that Tom would have came in looking for me calling in that hen decoy. And so if you can keep in mind that like in the turkey world and all you experts out there know this, but for you young guys that might not, um, that the hen comes to the tom, not the other way around. So you're you're trying to do everything in your favor to program that bird to go against what is biologically natural to him. On that note, yeah, I was alluding to it, and I, I didn't um, clearly explain that. But I mean, there's times where I'm set, if, if I'm set up in the woods or like kind of open, I'll, I'll put the if I hear a bird gobble, let's say directly out in front of me, and I got a bush ten yards wide out to my right at twenty yards, I'll put my decoys behind the bush so I can see the decoys perfectly. But I, I don't want to give that bird the opportunity to hang up out in front of me. I want him to have to circle around. And you can by the time you see that bird, you can almost stop calling. And I I tend to err on the side of caution and not overcall. Um, make him walk around and look for those hens. And hopefully by the time he sees it, he's in range. And then hunting on the edge of like agricultural fields. Um, and I learned this lesson the hard way multiple times when I was 12, 13 years old, setting up in, in the cornfield where birds were roosting behind me and I was facing the corn waiting for them to walk out, you know, to my left or my right into this cornfield, these toms will hang up 20 yards into the wood line behind you. So the first turkey I ever killed, you know, at 14 years old, I finally was just like, okay, this isn't working. Put my decoys in the same spot, walked 10 yards into the woods and faced into them. So the decoys are 30 yards behind me. And I had a, I mean, it was a Jake, but the thing came in and hung up probably 20 yards from the edge of the wood line. 50 yards with the decoys, but he was only a 10 yard shot for me. And if you put a big, big enough tree at your back and something does come out into that field, you have the opportunity to slowly turn around and still have, you know, shot out into the field. Talking about hanging up, Perry has a uh, pretty interesting story of a bird hanging up on him last year. I think there could be so, a lot of merit to telling that Perry, why don't you jump in and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. And I still don't fully understand why that bird did what it did. Um, again, you know, not coming from a, a position of, of expertise here, but it was a, it was a <clears throat> gobbler that I had, um, heard previously had a pretty good idea, at least figured out the vicinity of where he was roosting. Um, and we had seen some hens in that location previously as well. Um, uh, in one of our cattle pastures. Um, so I set up on an old fence line with a bunch of brushy stuff behind me. Um, no, no big tree, but plenty of structure with the old fence line, the brush and, um, set up a, a single, um, actually, I think I, I did have a hen and a Jake, um, that set up kind of out in front of me and off to my side. And, and this single hen came out and she was feeding, um, and, and fed actually right into my decoy setup and fed there for a while, had no clue I was there. This gobbler came in, um, saw him at, you know, two, 250 yards off down all the way down the, the bottom in this field and just kind of came, um, on a rope, a slow rope, um, didn't come screaming in there, but was steadily advancing and then just kind of got to about 60 yards that, that magic 60 yard number that you were talking about, John. 
and hung up. And I don't really understand why said he had a, a real hen in front of him feeding. Um, and that was what I think brought him there. Um, there were also my decoys there, which of course he saw. Um, ultimately that bird ended up flying, um, across the Creek and going up into the Ridge, um, in front of me and never saw him again. So, I mean, it, it was a, it was kind of a bizarre situation. This was opening day last year. So, I mean, it was super early in the season, obviously. Um, maybe he just wasn't quite fired up enough, or maybe he took the temperature of that hen and, and didn't think she was ready to breed. Um, don't know if you have any opinions on that, John, but it was a, I, I don't know that I have, um, a whole lot of insight cause I, I know what the bird did, but I don't really know why. Yeah. I mean, that's just the peril of turkey hunting. In my experience, every time that, uh, you go out and hear birds and have birds coming to you and you're unsuccessful, it's cause they, they hang up like Evan was talking about, he was more than likely just waiting for that hen to move to him. And, you know, maybe if you were able to hunt the next day, you do the same thing, but move into the wood line. Was there, was there more ag behind you? Were you just on a fence line in the middle of two ag fields? Yeah, it was, um, it was down there, you know, kind of as you're going towards the spruce field, Mm -hmm. um, kind of from the, the main bottom there. Um, so yeah, there was plenty of, of, uh, uh, you know, it's just pasture land. It's not, John, it was, it was literally the same location that me and you sat that first day we ever hunted together. And we put out your like a whole flock right there Mm -hmm. below the cactus rock, right. 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 Choke point next to the Creek. It was the same exact spot. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, with you hunting private, you have the ability to figure out your flock. I know you don't live there, but if you did and you had the time to, to hunt that bird again, the options we've alluded to it throughout the podcast is get back into the woods so that you, he is forced to enter the woods looking for those decoys or use a different decoy setup, whether it's just hens cause he's been getting his ass beat or whether it's putting out the full fanned Tom because he is the dominant bird and he wants to fight. So that's what I was just about to ask Perry. Was it a, was it a, uh, did you have your fan, your, your strutting Tom, or was it just like a normal Jake? Not yeah, a, just the, yeah, just the normal Jake, no strutter. Hmm. I was going to say, if it was the strutter, I was wondering if it was a non-dominant Tom that got leery of a strutter out there and didn't want to come in. But if it was just a normal Jake, I, I wouldn't really know. the. It also comes down to the time of the year, right? So like, depending on what state you live in, sometimes your opening day, those birds are just coming out of their winter flocks. And that was the first time I'd ever hunted that property with you, Evan. I had been up there for deer season and seen flocks of 40, 50 birds rolling around those pastures. I falsely assumed that they were still going to be in their winter flocks because you guys had a pretty early turkey season in Virginia. Uh, they were not. They already broken up at that point. But if, if you're hunting somewhere where there are winter flocks, that is the, the possibly by your opening day still. If, you, if you're hunting mid-March or late March, that's when you're going to want to put out your flock of hens because if the hens are still flocked up in your area. But it just comes down to figuring out your flock, what they're doing. And I mean, that's, that's happened to me 20 times, 30 times, Perry. Like, you know, it's just, that's turkey hunting. They hang up and you'll never, you never, you don't see them again until you hunt them the next day. Yeah. And and for what it's worth, and this is something for, for all of us, since we all, you know, have hunted that property and hopefully we can get you up there, Carter, for turkey season. I don't think I've ever seen, seen them still flocked up on opening day out there. So maybe they, you know, maybe they break up early. Um, and that part of the world. And maybe that's something to keep in the back of your minds. Yeah. I mean, this is all, um, 
absolutely good shit. We're coming up past an hour now. So um, I think we could do a whole nother podcast. This was kind of just wave tops on some tips, tactics, strategies, kind of get you started. Um, if there's anybody has any specific questions, definitely feel free to reach out to old Ron Jitter, um, Carter, Perry, Evan, or me. I'm probably the least qualified here. Uh, but don't be afraid to just get out there. Turkey hunting is one of those that like you're going to learn just by getting out there and doing it. Um, you know, using a slate call is not that hard to learn. Using a box call is definitely not hard. It's probably hard, hard to master, but not hard to get some, some noises. You don't have to worry about being the best caller at all. Um, some of the shittiest calling, you know, things in the woods are fucking turkeys. <clears throat> I've heard hens sound absolutely horrible. Um, and so you just got to make some noise. I did some really shitty purrs when I called with Carter, when I called in my bird. Um, and so like, it's not that difficult. You just got to get out there and practice and learn, you know, being a, you don't have to be a damn clarinet player with a mouth read, uh, in order to kill turkeys. <clears throat> Cause I, I feel like it kind of gets daunting once calling gets into the the mix. People get a little bit leery of, of trying it out. Turkey is a, it's a great way if you're not getting in, getting out there in the springtime to get back in the woods and, uh, and get after it. And it's so much more engaged and engaging than uh, deer hunting. Like once you get that first gobble back, like, man, there's nothing like it. It's a ton of fun. Yeah. Maybe on the next iteration of this Turkey podcast, we can dive into uh, calls and the different type of calls and when those calls are appropriate and kind of the, the nuance behind each and every one of those. Um, but if we're doing, are we doing closing thoughts, Luke, are we wrapping this guy up? Yeah, man, we're, we're coming up on it. So, uh, I think, you know, what would be cool. We, I'll talk to Derek too, is we need to try to get us a, you know, a guest who's a real master actual caller. Cause we can sit here and kind of talk about our limited experiences, but I think we need to get a true expert to give us the rundown on calling, uh, no doubt, but let's go ahead and, and roll this one up. Uh, Evan, what do you got for your closing com- comments, man? No, the one thing I would, I would say is just keep in mind, like under understanding the application is what I've learned is the, the biggest key to Turkey hunting. And, uh, you know, I'm a novice, uh, but I've, I have become obsessed with it. Like, I am not kidding you when I say I have turkey hunting dreams three or four nights a week. Like, I've got turkey hunting on the background right now. Like, I'm obsessed. And the application seems to be the biggest, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Where you get the most success is understanding the application of why. And like, that's something that I have learned and it has, it's been successful for me. Maybe it's because I've been lucky. Maybe because I'm doing something right. I don't know. We'll see after this season to see if uh, it holds true what Luke and Perry say about me being the luckiest hunter out there. But understand the application is my uh, closing comments. What do you got, Perry? Yeah, I agree with that for sure. The other thing I would add is um, when you're out there, just observe what the turkeys are doing. Like like Luke said, you watch some of these hens and and so oftentimes they sound like shit. Um, but you can you can really learn a lot. Uh, just by observing the birds, um, how they're moving, how they're using the terrain, what type of, of calls they're using and when, how that evolves and changes as the season progresses. Um, you know, observe what they're doing when this time of year when they are still flocked up versus and, and when that change happens. Like I said, I don't think I've ever seen an early season big flock of, of birds um, in, in southwestern Virginia where we hunt a lot. Um, maybe that's just an anomaly or maybe there's, there's something there. Um, but just, you know, pay attention, be observant. And, and like you said, Luke, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a completely different ball game than deer hunting. It's, it's super active. You always feel like, um, 
you know, you have a chance to go over the next ridgetop, set up, make a call and strike up a gobbler. And there's nothing more satisfying than, than hearing those gobblers sound off and, uh, and get to clucking that time of year. So looking forward to it. What do you got, Carter? Um, I think enough has been said about turkeys already. So I'm going to take this opportunity to, uh, emulate the great Pope Urban II. And, uh, I want all listeners to join me. <laughs> On my personal crusade of getting Ron Jitter to over a hundred followers on Instagram. So if you're listening to this when it comes out, you take up arms, go find Ron underscore Jitter underscore HLE, mash that follow button. I'm public now, so I didn't have to accept it. Dude, I'm I'm, I'm learning the social medias. (laughs) As Perry would say, right? (laughs) Hell yeah. Perfect. Moving on. What do you got to close this out, John? Growing up, one of the reasons why I didn't turkey hunt that much is because I was under the false impression that I needed, you know, that 50 acre plot where I could put a, a ground blind and have birds coming in out into, into feed and you don't need it. If you got public within, you know, two hour drive of you, just get out there. Um, I talked about it on the tips episode, you didn't have to scout, just go out there. As long as it's not raining, you can chase gobbles. Even if it is raining, bring whatever, whatever one call. You can master, whether it be a mouth call, because you can use it in the rain, or take a box call, put it in a two-gallon Ziploc bag, rip through the woods with that. Um, and that's, I mean, that that is my closing comment. And just get in the woods. I have almost come to find pub, private land to be a hindrance to my turkey hunting. I want to be able to get out there and just walk until noon and call for four to five minutes in one spot and move 500 yards a click and do it again. Um, at the end of the day, they're very vocal birds in the woods in the springtime, and you can chase them. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%, man. That was something that I think was pretty crazy for Perry, Evan, and I is we've been going out to our family farm our entire lives. And until we went turkey hunting and, like, was it, we're out there sitting in the spring and listening, we never realized how vocal turkeys were and how much they're talking and gobbling and how many turkeys we had. Um, and that was really cool and really badass for us. It just opened up, like, a whole new perspective you know, on the land that we grew up on. And, you know, public land is also fun because it's a great way to, um, you know, with the running gun tactics to explore and scout. Like you can, like, I mean, in Georgia, I would look for pig sign and deer sign as I was hunting turkeys, you know, you're chasing gobbles, um, but then you're also, you know, scouting, dropping pins for other stuff on public land. So it's just a great way to continue to get out and stay active. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one's been fun. I think there was some, some definite uh, nuggets to be, to be gleaned. Um, Y'all go check out uh, the new drop that dropped um, the 1st of March. We've got a bunch of new swag, a bunch of new shirts, some different colors of some classic designs, uh, one new design. We've got some new uh, new hats, a c- couple of which are perfect for turkey hunting. We've got our uh, Realtree um, original, which is a turkey pattern, and our Realtree Bottomlands, now two different hat patterns in the Bottomlands, so go check those out. Uh, we're also, we should still be running our President Zelensky um it's a just a you know black and white image of his face and it's we're running this to, to support ukraine and so all the proceeds from like all the profit that we're making on these shirts 100 percent is going to go uh to, towards buying medical supplies to go to the ukrainian military and police and so primarily tourniquets and combat guys uh we were working uh, a couple angles right there through uh derek and some of his connections and then i have some connections with some folks actually um, operating in and out of ukraine uh, ukraine excuse me and so uh, this is all legitimate it's all we 
we've vetted and verified everything that we're doing. So um, all the money, I'll post receipts on, you know, uh, Instagram and Facebook and on the website when all that stuff goes so everybody can verify and see that we're, where the money's going. You can also donate uh, money. We haven't set up the Venmo yet, but we're going to. Uh, by the time this drops, we may have. So just either message the HLE account or message, you can message Carter directly. Um, Carter, where can they find you on Instagram? Hey, you guys can find me at the homestead underscore GA. What about you, Evan? Well, you can just find me at the basic white boy name of Evan.D.Eisner. What about you, Perry? Yeah, same. Perry.R.Eisner. Perfect. And yeah, follow uh, Eat at Eat Official, and then you guys can follow me at Luke.D.Eisner. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> you forget your name, boy? Hell yeah. It's been a long day, boys. Luke.D.Cox. Jesus. You guys fucking stole the way I do my handle and confused me. I'm a pretty simple man. All right. Um, yeah, so that that's you know pretty much rounds it out and rounds up what we've got going on right now. Um, the next big thing on the docket for us will be we're going to have our summer drop, and we've, we're going to also do our, our challenge. So we had great results from the February Fitness Challenge. It was awesome. It's been cool to see. Um, by the time this drops, we've already announced the winners and everything uh, we're going through now and scrubbing, um, and looking at everybody's logs to make sure everything's on the up and up, but the winners will be announced and we're going to do another one, uh, May to June. And it's going to be a seven day, uh, competition. This one where the workouts will be, uh, disseminated and we'll go from there. More details will get pushed, but this one's going to be a lot of fun as well. And this one's going to be a little bit easy, uh, to kind of manage and regulate and ensure people are kind of doing everything on the up and up because there was a lot of wiggle room on this last one, which a lot of people were concerned about. Um, for a lot of folks that didn't do an entry fee, you were super worried about who was cheating and who wasn't, uh, which is okay. I understand everybody wants a fair shake at those stand two blade company knives and big frig uh, coolers plug for both of those two partners of HLE. You shouldn't have such sexy prizes out there. I know everybody was super concerned, but uh, it's okay. Like I said, um, this one will be a lot uh, easier to regulate. We're going to have two categories, one for people who are competing and one for people who are just doing the challenge to do the challenge. And so that way it's a little less, uh, you know, you can still try to compete against people and, and have the checks and like all that stuff. But these workouts are going to be very difficult. And so a lot of people actually will not be able to do them the way they're prescribed, uh, which is okay, but it'll be something to strive for. We're going to start doing uh, basically a workout or a different challenge every quarter. And so we'll do four a year to start and then build off that because we had a great response and it was a lot of fun and we want to continue to get people active. And uh, we're going to start tying each one to a different um, kind of charity and cause to support. And like I said, more will get published on that as we build it all out. Um, but yeah, I think that's all we got rolling right now. Um, so we'll wrap this one up. As always, we appreciate the hell out of every single one of you. Uh, thanks for tagging along and look forward to doing it again soon.